This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We're speaking today with Wharton finance professor David Musto about this year's winner of the Wharton Jacobs Levy Prize for Quantitative Financial Information, an award given annually to leading lights in the world of finance. And this year's winner is Stephen Allen Ross, who's considered by many in the field to be one of the most important thinkers in modern finance. Uh, one of his best-known ideas for which he's receiving this award uh, is arbitrage pricing theory, also shorthand known as APT, and it's a staple of finance since he developed it in 1976 while he was a professor here at Wharton. It's been called uh, by some the uh, the foundation for all risk factor models used today. So unfortunately, Mr. Ross died this past March at 73, shortly after he was announced the winner of the prize, uh, which will be awarded posthumously on September 15th at the Jacobs Levy Center's annual conference to be held in New York. More recently, he'd been a professor for many years at the MIT Sloan School of Management. Uh, Ross's work covered many fields from asset pricing to management and corporate finance. So, Professor Musto, let's let's just start by talking about his probably most famous theory, APT, which I just mentioned. Uh, It was truly groundbreaking as a way to analyze risk and returns in financial markets. It looked at how to identify assets that were trading too low or too high because of market mispricing. Can you explain how important that theory is and the basics of how it works? Okay. Well, thank you. I'd be uh, happy to. And to understand the importance of this, of this theory, it is also worth thinking about the contributions of the two previous winners of the Jacobs-Levy Prize, and that would be Harry Markowitz and Bill Sharp. So let's uh, rewind all the way back to the 1950s when Harry Markowitz was finishing his PhD. His, um, his work, his graduate work, was about the risk of stocks, and in particular, the risk that an investor should care about. See, his point was that Um, Sure, stocks are risky. Uh, Investors are averse to risk. And so, therefore, they should care about the risk of stocks and maybe discount for it when they buy. But his point was that if you think about the risk that faces an investor, it's not the risk of individual stocks. Um, An intelligent investor is going to diversify across many stocks, and the risk that faces the investor, the risk that ultimately um, is going to uh, deliver the the payoff to his bank account is going to be the risk of this portfolio. And once you think of it that way, you realize that the, the correct measure of risk is not a stock's risk by itself, but instead the risk that it's going to add to a diversified portfolio. So that was his point. That was a a path-breaking point and what uh, the uh, contribution that he won the Jacobs-Levy Prize for. Okay, so now go forward from the 50s to the 60s, and now Bill Sharp is a graduate student, and um, and then his, his most famous 
paper and the one that he won the Jacobs Levy Prize for is one that shows that if in a world where investors are trying to maximize their expected return for a given unit of volatility, you can reach the conclusion that the risk that really matters about a stock is what you call its beta, right? It's beta. The uh, Essentially, uh, in technical terms, the result you would get if you did a regression of the stock's return on the market portfolio, you get a number which on average is going to be one, but it could be higher or lower. That is what tells you the risk that the stock adds to the market portfolio. Is that a volatility measure in a way? So, well, beta is telling you it's 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 telling you what today we would call the systematic portion of the stock's return. So, that portion of the stock's return, essentially that portion that's correlated with the market, the stock is going to have what uh, practitioners would call an idiosyncratic component. Idiosyncratic meaning its own special risk from its own special thing that the company does. That is, of course, important to people at the company. It's important um, to the CEO, but to a holder of a diversified portfolio, those uh, idiosyncratic risks of the component stocks are going to are going to uh, average out uh, close to zero uh, when you put together a big portfolio, and so that's just not going to matter so much. This is capturing that portion that's not going to wash out. Okay. So so that was uh, Bill Sharp in the 60s. So now think about Steve Ross in the 70s. Okay. So Steve Ross came here in the early 70s, came here to Wharton in the early 70s. And uh, he uh, soon developed this arbitrage pricing theory. And he approached the question in a somewhat different fashion. He said, okay, let's just start by assuming that uh, stock returns follow what you could call a factor structure. By way of factor structure, what you mean is that there's some small number of factors, let's say five, there's, it doesn't, there's no specific number it has to be, but let's say it's five factors. Those five, let, let's say those five factors um, account for uh, most or almost all of the of the co-movement between stocks, right? All that idiosyncratic, all the, all the, sorry, all the systematic portion of their stock returns is captured by those, by those five factors. Everything that's not captured by them is idiosyncratic. Well, let's say that's true. His point was that in a world um, with that kind of factor structure, the, um, the risk of a stock that's going to matter to investors is that uh, the, its exposure to those factors and uh, every factor is going to have associated with it what you would call a risk premium. So how many units of additional expected return a, an investor can um, uh, uh, can get uh, for additional exposure to that factor. So exposure to those factors is going to give 
uh, investors more expected return for bearing that systematic risk associated with those factors. And then the idiosyncratic component um, of the stock's return is not going to give you any additional expected return. It shouldn't because um, to an intelligent investor putting together an optimal portfolio, that's just going to wash out. It's the, it's the factor-driven part of the return that's going to matter, and so that's going to, that's going to be driving expected returns. So over time, uh, people, to, to sort of take this idea into practice, um, the way people have, have developed it is to think about what those factors could be that would be the underlying drivers of stock returns. Factors, you know, they could be things like changes in expected inflation, could be developments to, uh, you know, GNP. Um, it could be things having to do with interest rates and uh, what they would be and what kind of um, risk premium would you need to, for, to um, be compensated for exposure to that factor. Those things tend to be macro? Yeah, these would, these would be uh, macro forces that can have their own separate um, effects on stock returns, right? So it, it could be it could be inflation. It could be about the term structure of interest rates. Um, it could be um, it could be production uh, of the economy in general. Things like that. And so this this led to um, predictions or rather analysis that would show that an individual stock was overpriced or underpriced, and then you can make decisions for buying and selling based on that? Well, one direction you could go, and this is a direction I'm familiar with because um, I actually worked for Steve Ross for a couple years when after I finished college, and it was a money management company. It was called Roland Ross Asset Management, uh, Roll being Dick Roll, another famous uh, finance academic who was also going to be speaking at our Jacobs Levy event, by the way. Um, at this company, uh, the, the, this company, we, what we did was, well, I say we, I was a junior guy there. They were the senior people. But the goal of this company was to manage equity portfolios for pension funds, endowments, and the like. And, and the, um, the special sauce of the company was understanding expected returns via the arbitrage pricing theory, by which I mean understanding for a given stock what, um, what expected return um, you would need to hold the stock uh, given its exposure to the macro factors driving stock returns. And if we could uh, perceive through our sort of black box code that I was working on the whole time there, if one could perceive that th here's a stock that has uh, maybe some additional expected return over and above the return that one would require for its macro exposures, then that was a stock to buy. So that, that, was, that was the goal of our software. 
um, to to find expected returns over and above the returns that were required for risk so that you're giving people sort of an economic profit. You're giving them more expected return than the um, – than they would normally get for bearing that much risk. So it's interesting that um, his theories were uh, developed in academia, as I understand it, but then they were applied directly onto Wall Street, which doesn't happen every day. Yeah, that's true. And it's true not just for the arbitrage pricing theory, but also um, the another um, – framework he developed that people on Wall Street would be quite familiar with is the binomial option pricing model. This is um, a very elegant way to price the whole range of derivative securities out there. Um, and from so Steve, building on the work of Black and Scholes, showed how you could um, you could take what they did and think about it in this binomial framework. Um, that would help you price a wide range of securities and sort of show you how you go about um, how you go about replicating the payoff of any derivative security you might be interested in with this binomial trading technique. You know, one thing I'm I'm reading about uh, Professor Ross is that this was something that he became known for, which was moving things from the theoretical, the abstract, maybe academic into the real world of Wall Street. And um, you probably have some insight into how he thought about that, or was that a conscious thing that he did uh, from your observations working with him? Well, um, from my experience with him, uh, I saw a man, of course, he was very uh, intelligent. He was intelligent, but in a very calm way. Um, But he was a very intelligent man who came out of Caltech as an undergrad um, studying physics. And... He had a way of modeling an economic problem that was always very elegant and yet, um, how to put it, conclusive. In other words, he had a way of actually getting to the actual problem, modeling in a way that just settled the question. And um, this is something that I saw as coming out of his exposure to the uh, the great physicists of the time and how they how they would stylize a problem just enough to be able to solve it uh, robustly, and that's what he did again and again. And it was uh, it was you know it was impressive to watch. Um, any other thoughts or impressions of the man that you spent some time around? Well, just that he was um, he was a great. Um, intellectual presence. Um, I attended his uh, the memorial service held for him at Yale. Um, that's where I know him from. I grew up in New Haven, and I met him in New Haven, and he was a professor at Yale in between being here at Penn and later being at MIT. And there was a memorial service um, which uh, packed a very large chapel at Yale, and one person after another was testifying to his uh, just how um, generous and um, um, and yet incisive he was, and uh, you know it was it was a, it was fun to think that um, a man like him with his his capabilities had chosen our field to work in. Thanks very much for sharing your thoughts about all of this with us today. Much appreciated. Well, great to be here. 
For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.